Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. Queer in the Air would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon peoples of the Kulin Nation, true owners, custodians and caretakers of the land on which this program is created and produced. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Today's episode of Queering the Air was produced and recorded in a substitute workspace in my home in Nam, Melbourne, as a result of stage 3 COVID-19 physical distancing measures that are in place in metropolitan Melbourne. You're listening to Queer in the Air, critically engaged queer commentary with an interest on the intersection of queerness with other experiences of marginalisation. The show is presented by peers on the LGBTIQA spectrum. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter via the handle Queer in the Air. And listen to our podcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash Queer in the Air. My name is MV. Please be aware that today's episode contains descriptions and discussions of HIV stigma and discrimination. If this is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1800 184 527 or switchboard.org.au or contact your state-based service. On today's episode of Queer in the Air, you'll hear a conversation I conducted with Bo Newham, an activist, writer, and amateur archivist who has been working in HIV advocacy and programming in Indonesia for the past five years. He recently returned to Melbourne due to COVID-19. We discussed Bo's HIV health promotion work with Yayasan Gaya Diwata in Indonesia, the ongoing HIV stigma that exists towards people living with HIV, his side projects with Queer Indonesia Archive and QLC, and his writing Impossible and Inevitable, and An Open Letter to the Person Who Gave Me HIV. Here is the first part of our conversation. You're listening to Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital, and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. My name is Bo Newham. I am a 33-year-old queer Anglo guy from Sydney, Australia. I've spent the last four to five years uh, living and working in Indonesia, going between Denpasar in Bali and Jakarta in Java. I've mostly been working with an organization called Yayasan Gaya Dewata. It is a community-based organization for gay men and other men who have sex with men and transform communities in Bali, Indonesia. I'm mainly focused on HIV and sexual health, but also a little bit on LGBT rights and advocacy. Over the last few years, I've mostly focused on working in building programs and groups that help support people living with HIV in Indonesia. Mostly over the last one to two years, I've been working on building projects and programs that help support people living with HIV in Bali. Um, this was all made possible through uh, the Australian Volunteer Program. So I was a Australian government-supported volunteer living and working in Indonesia. So the way that works is I work full-time um, with the organisation, so with Yayasan Gai Dewata, but I'm supported like with a, a small stipend to live and work there by the Australian government through DFAT. I, I'd done a few roles with Yayasan Gai Dewata, and most recently we're, we were building a project called Sesama, and it was a project based on trying to build up the part of the organisation that was providing support for people living with HIV. So we were completing a needs assessment. So we were doing both a community survey and a series of 50 in-depth interviews with people living with HIV in Bali, just to kind of get a perspective on the services they're accessing, any issues they're having with medication, what support and services they feel they need into the future. So that's what I've been mostly working on over the last six months. 
up until I had to return home because of COVID-19, um, which happened at the end of March. And during the time that you were working there, what did you find was the most satisfying part? So, yeah, yes, I'm going to water itself is quite a remarkable organization. It's been around since 1992. It was founded by a group of gay men and trans in the early 90s. It is part of a longer tradition in Indonesia of community-based organizations that came up through the 80s and 90s. Um, so for me, it was really amazing to work with people that had been involved in community organizing for such a long period of time. Like the, the director for the majority of the time I was there had been involved since the beginning and much of the, the management staff had been there since the early 90s. So they had really seen, obviously, a, a dramatic shift both in, in Bali, in the demographics of, of the queer community in Bali, and also the impact of HIV on the community. For me, you know, I, I always feel that HIV work is most successful when it is being run by and through the community. So I was always really proud to kind of bring my skill set in to try and help Sangai Rawada do the work, you know, that they're best at. Just with how funding models are working in HIV at the moment, there's like a very huge focus on HIV prevention and on, you know, getting people to test and getting people to know their status. But there's not always the follow up of offering support and helping people that find out that they're positive, kind of find their community and kind of find the support they need to kind of live with their status in Indonesia. Because it is quite a different um, scenario of what it's like to be living with HIV in Indonesia compared to a country like Australia. And so that's why I, over the last few years, I've kind of shifted my focus to programs that are, less focus on the prevention side of HIV and more focus on the treatment, care, support end of the spectrum. Sounds like fantastic work that you have done and you will continue doing. We'll get into that a bit more further on. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and have a discussion about the open letter that you wrote in 2019. This was an article that appeared in Vice magazine and the title of this article or this open letter an open letter to the person who gave me HIV. You described it as, despite the stigma, I'm sharing our story, a story of HIV, of sex, of love. When you were thinking about writing this piece, what made you write it? What was the decision for you? The context of me being diagnosed with HIV was I just decided to move back to Australia from Indonesia. Uh, My contract had finished in November of 2018. And I got back to Sydney, yeah, late December. And I remember, I remember it was because it was the day before New Year's Eve um, and I was camping down at Oxford Beach in the Royal National Park and I was hiking out of there and I was like, like so exhausted and I was just like, wow, I can't believe I've gotten this unfit in Indonesia. When I got home, I realized I had like a rash all over my body So unfortunately, I I got quite sick. I went to a doctor a few days after and I found out that she thought it was a viral infection. Obviously, flash forward ended up being HIV. So that timeline meant that I knew that I had actually picked up HIV when I was in Indonesia. Over the next few months, I really felt that half of my narrative about having HIV was the fact that I had gotten it in Indonesia and that through contact tracing, I had worked out who I had gotten it from and a lot of my a lot of my emotional processing that I had to go through was very much linked up with with Bali and with Indonesia. That letter was written when I was still in Sydney and I was still trying to process kind of like this gap I was experiencing between the lived reality of what it's like to have HIV in Sydney, Australia at the moment, which is lots of support. We have free access to HIV medication. We have, you know, some of the best healthcare in the world. Um, And that it is just really a kind of a manageable chronic illness and that I can benefit from like the decades of successful advocacy and activism that's happened through the 
community in Australia. And the fact that I, I knew that the, um, my friend was going through the same experience, but in like a very different environment where, you know, medication was also free, but like not readily available, where there's a lot more hoop jumping in terms of getting treatment and that there wasn't support both in the community, but also like systemic support for people living with HIV over there. Um, So that letter was me trying to process that, trying to kind of draw out the contrast in our experience and how interlinked they are. And also this strange feeling I always had with it. The guy I'm speaking about in the letter, when I told him that I had come back positive and that he should test, you know, when he does test, he, he finds out he's positive, but also he finds out his CD4 is very, very low. So he, he must have had it for a significant period of time. With how low his CD4 was, he was like in real danger. Like it did leave me a weird feeling of, you know, if we hadn't dated, if that hadn't happened, what would have been the thing that inspired him to get tested? Would it have been him, you know, being admitted to hospital? Yeah, so obviously there's a lot there, but that was what I was trying to work through in that that writing. It was really remarkable to see that out in the world. And I, I received a lot of love and support and I got a lot of contact from people living with HIV, both around the world, but especially in Indonesia. It was originally published in English, but it, it was translated into Indonesian and published through Vice Indonesia. Um, I think they also translated it to a few other languages as well, which was really incredible. And yeah, I think it just goes to show that kind of there isn't just one narrative anymore that, you know, the more pharmaceuticals are the the kind of given answer to the problem of HIV, the bigger this gap is going to become between countries that have uh, resource-rich and developed healthcare systems and countries that just don't have access to the same level of resources. I mean, the article or the open letter itself, it's, it's so beautifully written that it's so emotive. The description of the dinner you were having with this person, like you really set the scene. I think that was really quite a remarkable thing. I really liked reading it. What was the person's reaction to seeing the open letter? And did you ever fear there was going to be any backlash or that you were going to be stigmatized yourself? It appears that you had written the the open letter quite soon after you had been diagnosed. How was it to write this particular piece for you putting all these ideas and these descriptions into words? So in terms of his reaction, obviously he saw it many, many times before anyone else did. And like we both come at it through very different perspectives, like like anything we did together, we did together. It was like both our choices and I hold no resentment about like what occurred. Sometimes he can feel quite guilty or, you know, that he holds some ultimate responsibility for what happened, which, you know, I don't feel is the case, but that's something he is working through. Like we're, we're still in contact. Um, we still talk about it quite a bit, especially over kind of the impact COVID has had on people living with HIV in Indonesia. I've been checking in it on him quite a bit. In terms of writing the letter and reaction, you know, I, I never really had any fear about backlash in Australia. Um, I, I, w- I was quite shocked to come back because in the time I'd been overseas was the almost the exact timeline of the prep rollout in Australia. So moving back to Sydney at that time, it was the first time I had kind of been in a country where PrEP was fully rolled out and quite normalized in especially like the queer community. You know, I, I feel like it's done a remarkable thing in terms of making people think about how medication works and kind of what they're doing in a response to HIV. You know, obviously they're very different, but U equals U and PrEP at least working on like similar principles. So if you're, you know, making the choice to be on PrEP, then you're already kind of making the choice to accept the the science that underpins you equals you. I've always been quite open about it. 
I was open about it pretty much since my diagnosis. And in some ways, I that was to kind of avoid kind of giving it more weight than it I feel like it deserves. I, I, I feel like there's a it's really easy to fall into this kind of Hollywoodization of the moment where you kind of like kind of make it seem like you have to sit down and like kind of tell people to brace themselves and um, really walk people through it. You know, it, I just don't feel like the lived reality of it as a medical condition kind of warrants that anymore. I looked at it, I was like, well, I wouldn't sit down white knuckled to tell someone I had diabetes, you know? And like, sometimes I feel like kind of giving it all of that weight kind of, you know, isn't very conducive to kind of us pushing through into the next stage of how people react to HIV. I also liked using writing to kind of come out more broadly because, you know, for me, when I'm telling people, it can, sometimes it can feel like, at least for me, emotionally, like if they have a really strong reaction to it, my kind of initial instinct is to kind of like really prioritize their feelings and walk them through it. Whereas I, um, that's not necessarily how I want to process it. Whereas this, like, if you're reading my writing, you're kind of by the nature of reading writing, like having to prioritize like my emotional response and my narrative of um, going through this is. And that way I can kind of save the kind of more intimate discussion of it with like my, my loved ones. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Let's talk more about your writing. You'd written also in 2019 an article called Impossible and Inevitable. And a few lines from there really stood out for me and kind of resonated somewhat. Speaking about your first physical intimacy since your diagnosis and that feeling of starving yourself, feelings of anxiety and also describing your body as as alien, but also having that idea of feeling invincible. Can you tell me more about those feelings that you were experiencing during this time and, and what sort of led you to write this particular article as well? Yeah, so that was the first piece I wrote kind of, and it kind of chronicles my, you know, the first few months of my diagnosis, you know, and I, I feel like, you know, every single HIV test I had throughout my life, there's always been the kind of voice in the back of your head being like, you know, no matter how remote the possibility is, like there's always like a voice in your head thinking that, oh, you know, this could have, this could just like spontaneously happen. But at the same time, like during events that could possibly make it happen at, in those times feels quite a remote chance. Obviously there's a part of me that felt like it was inevitable that felt at least at some point, like at every HIV test, that there was like some chance that it could happen. But, you know, obviously like with sex, we often take risks that, you know, that based off the ideas that, you know, it's not going to happen to us. And, it, you know, it's like balancing those two, those two kind of conflicting um, versions of HIV anxiety and emotional responses to HIV. You know, in my experience of a lot of like Anglo Australian men of my age, like we're not always the best narrators of our own emotional experience. And so often, you know, my feelings kind of like sneak up on me and they're like a delayed reaction to, you know, whatever whatever's happening. So it like really did take me a while to kind of I'd feel like I'd process it and like kind of be moving forward and then like something else would happen that would kind of kind of tap into like obviously some emotional part of it that I hadn't hadn't fully processed yet. And I feel at that time a lot of the confusion I was having was was that gap between Indonesia and Australia. Um and that kind of that I had watched like quite a number of people pass away due to HIV. And like you know, if I had never lived in Indonesia, I don't think I would be able to say that. You know, thankfully, I've never known of anyone I know in Australia who's passed away due to HIV, but it's, you know, quite a common narrative in Indonesia. A lot of that work was about, kind of, yeah, just the, the just those immediate emotional reactions we have, that that shock that we have to process, that kind of 
what what is the kind of emotional baggage that is that actually more reflective of like an intergenerational trauma within like the queer community, especially in the like gay man community? And what parts of that are useful and like what parts of that are really reflecting a time that doesn't necessarily exist anymore? It was all of that that I was trying to like process and get through in that article. Obviously, um, it doesn't go through or process all of that, but it was kind of my attempt at the time to kind of like demarcate and like process what that experience was like. Such beautiful words. And thank you for sharing those words with us via writing, but also via this conversation. Like I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to kind of unpack a bit more of what those words meant for you and how that felt for you during that time. And I'm really appreciative of you being so vulnerable and and sharing that. I think one of the wonderful lines from the open letter, you said, this is how silence brings harm. It isolates us and makes it vulnerable. So the way I see that is by sharing these experiences and being open and vulnerable really does kind of bring this sense of solidarity and may even assist somebody else in being able to tell their story. So... Yeah. Let's flip the coin and talk a bit more about the community activism that you're doing and especially the work that you were doing whilst you're in Indonesia. You you speak a lot about the stigma that arises as a result of um, HIV diagnosis, but also the difficulty in obtaining medication, in particular antiretroviral medications. Can you explain what that means and discuss the impacts on the communities that you worked within? So the situation in terms of stigma of HIV and um, in Indonesia and, you know, access of treatment, obviously they're interlinked. You know, stigma of HIV is still quite high in Indonesia. A lot of the programming received is very much like kind of fear-mongering idea of HIV that, you know, HIV is in some ways a, you know, a punishment for bad behavior. It's the reason why you shouldn't be engaging in casual sex. It's the reason, you know, the most indicative of the kind of power it still holds is that Indonesia every every five years does a a national health survey um, and it asks huge numbers of people what they think about a variety of health topics. And in that, they ask people, how willing would you be to purchase fresh produce of someone living with HIV? And still a majority of people say that they wouldn't be willing. So, you know, if that's still where the kind of the level of understanding of risk in terms of HIV is and that is in the general community, obviously that's going to impact people living with HIV in every aspect of their life. And so this will go from anything from in, you know, small and medium-sized businesses, it's still perfectly legal and quite commonplace to fire someone if you found out they have HIV. There are often cases when children living with HIV are forced to leave the schools that they're in because other families are uncomfortable with their children having classmates living with HIV. And, you know, still massive government programs, scholarships, etc., that won't allow anyone living with HIV to access them. So obviously there's still so much work to be done in terms of kind of shifting the conversation about HIV, about kind of introducing ideas of um, you equals you, of, you know, that you can, you know, eliminate transmission between mothers and newborn children and have children without posing any risk to their children and to their partners. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a national push to educate people about U equals U or uh, undetectable equals untransmissible. And a lot of that is conservatism in terms of the medicine, but also just access to the kind of medical infrastructure that you need for U equals U to work. Viral load testing isn't very readily available in Indonesia. When places do have access to it, there's only a very strict quota of the number of people that can access it at no cost. And if you are paying for it, it is like very prohibitively expensive. And then on the other side, there's obviously the treatment issue. Thankfully, treatment is freely available to all, all Indonesians in Indonesia. 
Um, it is readily available through a majority of hospitals and through government healthcare clinics known as Puskesmas and through a number of specialty sexual health clinics. Unfortunately, because it is a centralised procurement system, which means that the national government is responsible for the procurement of all HIV medication in Indonesia, when there is either a procurement misstep or if there's a uh, something like a global pandemic, <laughs> there can be massive impacts on the drug supply in Indonesia. This year, the worst of both worlds happened. There was already a, a slight mishap in terms of the supply chain in Indonesia, which was causing low stockage of the medication in most provinces in Indonesia. And then um, COVID-19 happened, which caused a lot of delays on deliveries and a lot of borders to harden that really impacted the supply chain of HIV medication from the countries in which they're made. So Indonesia relies on generic HIV medication, um, which is mostly produced in India. And so the hardening of the borders and the kind of reduction in uh, flights around the world really had an impact on the supply levels of HIV treatment in Indonesia. So this meant that people were having to go to HIV clinics every week in order to be given seven tablets of medication. And then they would have to return every week to pick up new medication, not knowing week to week whether the supply was actually going to run out. Coronavirus pandemic is like the worst case scenario because obviously it's these same clinics, these same hospitals that people that are showing coronavirus symptoms are turning up at in order to get tested. So it's kind of a perfect storm of problems all happening at the same time. Thankfully, um, stockage problems have been resolved in Indonesia for the moment and, you know, hopefully into the future. But at the beginning of this year, there was like a large number of months where stress of just accessing medication was so high. And so many of my friends were, you know, really having an existential crisis about whether they were going to be able to get the medication they needed just to kind of maintain their health, let alone the kind of stress we're all under at the moment in regards to kind of protecting ourselves from COVID-19 and kind of acting responsibly for both our own health and also the health of the people around us. And so during that five years that you spent with Yayasan Gaya Dewata, you work with a diverse bunch of communities and it sounds like the most important thing at that particular time was access to treatment and support. And you've spoken about the different roadblocks for people in accessing that. So just to consolidate that, what do you feel like were the most important issues for people living with HIV and also people who just wanted to access HIV prevention methods? So most recently, the focus of our work was to try and build a stronger community of people living with HIV in Bali. Um, at the moment, a lot of the models for um, care and support for people living with HIV in Indonesia are based on a kind of one-to-one service model. So that that means that uh, so you would have a, an outreach worker and they might meet one-on-one to kind of counsel or talk to someone who's living with HIV. Often those outreach workers have a very large uh, number of, of clients, so they can only act, only give so much support. Uh, so what we were trying to do was to kind of build the space so that people living with HIV can come together and engage with each other and hopefully kind of give enough support that they can become their own supporting community. Uh, obviously, we've seen that this to some great success in, in Australia, um, both kind of face-to-face groups run by, say, Fawn Harbour Health or ACON in Sydney, um, uh, sorry, and uh, Living Positive New South Wales, and, you know, online resources such as the Institute of Many or Tim. So we wanted to kind of play around with what models might might work in Indonesia, um, especially in Bali, where in Bali it 
there are a lot of people who have migrated from other parts of Indonesia and don't necessarily have kind of the family support or the peer support that a lot of people tend to have if they are living the same city or town that they grew up in. So we, you know, before I left, we were kind of working with an idea of a kind of a weekend, kind of a weekend forum model. So trying to get everyone in one place um, that they felt safe in and kind of building from the ground up a, a community of queer people living with HIV that that kind of had each other's best interests in, in mind. Obviously, it's tricky. Um, stigma is very much in the community itself. Making people having to meet face-to-face or meet in groups is putting them at a lot of risk. Like like I said, people do lose their jobs. People um, do lose partners. They, they can be, you know, they can lose their house. They can be told to move out of entire um, areas based on people finding out their HIV status. So um, meeting in a group is is seen by a lot of people living with HIV in Indonesia as like kind of a risky move. But, you know, we w- we knew that there was enough people in the community that were open to this idea and that were interested in this idea. So that's kind of the work that Yegedi is focused on. This year, obviously, kind of meeting face-to-face won't be happening anytime soon with coronavirus, but that's the kind of model we're hoping to kind of experiment with in Bali. Or, well, they will be continuing to experiment with in Bali. Yeah, I, I feel like that, that's kind of the shape of all the, a lot of the work I've been doing in Indonesia. It's just very much about kind of building space for people to like come together and work out collectively what they want and kind of giving them the resources and um, the assistance in order to kind of push that forward and to, you know, to kind of realize the strength in their own, their own communities. You've just listened to the first part of my conversation with Bo Newham, where we discussed his HIV health promotion work with Yayasan Gaya Diwata in Indonesia, the ongoing HIV stigma that exists towards people living with HIV, and his writing works that unpack the details of his HIV journey. The second part of our conversation is coming up after a break. You're listening to Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital, and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Since the pandemic was starting, I think what we've seen that any pre-existing inequality and discrimination was actually really heightened during the pandemic. For LGBTQ people seeking asylum, the differences were in the fact that as any other asylum seekers, they are on bridging visas. And it is really difficult to find employment on a bridging visa. A lot of LGBTQ people seeking asylum are not eligible for Medicare. And so in situations before when they were able to work and had any specific medical needs, now there was no jobs anymore. People seeking asylum are not eligible for any government income support. and so for many that men they cannot meet their health needs at all. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. An important message from the Victorian government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian government, managing this together. A 3CR supporter. If you just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am digital and live streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. My name is MV. In the second part of my conversation with Bo Newham, we discuss his side projects as co-founder of Queer Indonesia Archive and founder of QLC, a community support group. And we also discuss the importance of community engagement 
and providing agency and empowerment to queer people. Let's talk about your work that you've been doing apart from your prevention and support work. Your co-founding of the Queer Indonesian Archive. Why was it started and what's the crux of developing this archive? Okay, so the Queer Indonesia Archive or QIA, um, it was started at the end of last year. Um, and it kind of goes back to the work I was doing with Yaisan Gaidawata. Um, one day I had the pleasure of finding um, a large stack of photo albums in the office. And I kind of had pulled them out. It was like a quiet day at work. And I was going through them with my, my boss and a few of the other old staff. And, you know, there were, there were photos mostly from the, the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, back when people were still kind of taking photos with film and having them developed. I was just hearing so many stories. And, like, I think, I, I think through, like, going for those photo albums, I... I heard more stories about like kind of the early times of the organization at that point than I had in like the kind of three years that I had been, three to four years I'd been working there. And like some really, some really interesting moments, like the, um, the, the, the first kind of beauty pageant they did in 96, Raka and Rai, and then the, um, their involvement in the, sorry, the third gay and lesbian Congress in Debesar in the um, in the mid '90s, and so from that I was like, well, already some of these photos are damaged, and so I was like, hey, do you guys mind if I go get these digitized? And they were all for it, so I went. We got them all digitized, and and I was showing them around to some of the members of another group I'm involved with, QRC in Bali, and you know, and they're mostly younger people in their early 20s and I was showing them the photos and they just had no idea about any of this stuff in the 90s. Um, they had no idea that there used to be like a gay and lesbian congress in Indonesia. They had no idea of kind of the scale of um, the older beauty pageants in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, they were so fascinated by it and so in, interested in it. So then I got speaking to a good friend of mine, Haritz, and he He's currently in Sydney doing his master's in um, museum studies and curation. And we kind of came up with this idea of playing around in whether we can kind of turn this into a bigger project of kind of finding a place for materials like this to be digitized and kind of kept somewhere and organized and accessed by people throughout Indonesia. Um, so that's where it started, and we've had had some really great support from some amazing people like Tom Tom Bostoff, um, who's an anthropologist that was um, really active in Indonesia in the late 90s and early 2000s, and had done a lot of his own digitizations of magazines and paraphernalia from that time. He gave us access to his collection. Um, so we worked on processing that. Um, and we've also been, as much as we can, kind of helping organizations kind of kind of see what materials they have and helping them digitize it. Um, and then we did a call out for volunteers. And so we've had about 30 to 40 volunteers that have been helping us kind of catalog and catalog the collection that we do have and get it online. So we've set up a... Um, a digital archive using an open source software called Omeka and we've been like slowly adding to the archive so we have about 300 objects up there at the moment you know which you can go access at um, qiarchive.org. At the moment there's some pretty amazing materials from the 1980s and the 1990s and we're really hoping into the future that we can kind of find some funding for it and do some digitization field trips where we kind of find these older organizations and help them digitize their materials and hopefully collect some oral histories uh, because activism in Indonesia has been going just as long as anywhere else. It's taken with some really different shapes and forms over the years, but, you know, people were active in the 60s, people were active in the 70s, 
the first gay and lesbian organization started getting founded in the 80s and 90s. But before that, like trans porn organizations were already founded in the 60s and were in most major cities by the 70s. Um, beauty pageants have been like in, you know, every, every, every big city in Indonesia, in Indonesia, uh, throughout Indonesia has had a, uh, at least a transform beauty pageant, sometimes much bigger sections of the community than that. So we just wanted to kind of play around with how we can take that history and kind of give it a home somewhere. Uh, obviously, digital archives have their own difficulties. Uh, obviously, like privacy is a huge concern to us. And uh, like we are... Di- we are digitizing a lot of content and we're processing and cataloging a lot of content, but it's not all open to the public. So at the moment, a lot of our work is about contacting the people that created materials, kind of informing them about their project and us getting, working with them to see where they want to see it in the collection, whether it's in the public collection that's openly available to everyone or whether it's in a private collection that's just available for researchers or um, journalists or people kind of that are known to the community or whether it's in a a private uh, restricted collection that, you know, they still have control about who gets to access it and it's done on a case-by-case basis. That's kind of where we're at at the moment. It's, you know, it started small, but it's kind of turning into a massive project. Um, Thankfully, there's been so many people involved now and, a lot of kind of grassroots passion for the project. Uh, I, yeah, I just really, there's a thousand reasons why I want COVID-19 to kind of be over. Um, but, you know, really having some time to, to do some field trips to really get kind of get this project moving forward is definitely up there with them. I was, um, I was meant to, I was meant to be doing some field trips for this project in March and April. So, uh, you know, that was all kind of waylaid by Corona. So hopefully uh, once it's all come down again next year, we can kind of get out there and kind of really get some new materials for it. And out of the archives, like what has been something that's really, I don't know, sparked your interest the most that you've come across and going, wow, that, is really cool. That's really interesting. I really love what that is speaking about or some imagery. What has been something that you've come across that's really spoken to you? Um, there's just so many events that I just want to know so much more about. Uh, there was a really, a very popular big festival that happened in Indonesia every year called uh, September Jaria um, that happened in central Java. And I really want to hear more about that. I want to find out more about the um, the early transform organizations in the 60s and 60s and 70s because I, I really feel like that's a section of the um, movement that has not, not been very well documented. And, you know, people are getting older and a lot of that history is so vulnerable at the moment. We, we don't put any effort now to kind of, to get those histories, to get that kind of community-based knowledge about what it was like in those times and kind of digitize those materials now, I just, I, I can really see it being lost forever. I want to I wanna find out more about the gay and lesbian congresses that happened throughout the 90s. Uh, I want to find out more about the role of, of the queer movement in Reformasi and the the movement that brought down Sohato in the late 90s. I found out that, you know, Indonesia's already had its first pride parade in the late 90s in Surabaya. And it's it's this type of history that, you know, it's so easily lost. And, like, there is a, a kind of a push to, a concerted push to make this history disappear. And I think it's, I think it's really important that that hopefully this project can help um, ensure that you know young queers now and like queers into the future have access to the history of their communities and because you know it's their history and they knowing what what's come before you and you know the 
the struggle, the brilliance, the you know, the hard work, the the upsets, the the loss um, that's come before you is so important to building the future and imagining what future is possible and imagining what activism can look like. And so, I, yeah, I, you know, it's a very, to me, it's a really important project. Um, I'm really, I'm really glad to be involved with in it with, um, with Harriet's. And yeah, I really hope that in the future we can, we can find some funding and really build it up to be something that, that is sustainable. I'm not sure it will ever be a physical collection. Obviously, um, I'm really inspired by, say, the Australian uh, Lesbian and Gay Archives here in Melbourne, who have an amazing physical collection, or, say, um, the Pride History Group in Sydney, um, who are doing some amazing oral history work. When we discussed the idea of a physical collection in Indonesia, we actually felt that it would be more risky to bring up, take all those objects and put them in one place, just given the current political landscape in Indonesia. You know, I don't, I wouldn't want to be part of removing those objects from Indonesia either. Like that, there's a very long history of that kind of paternalist mentality of like, we have to take these objects and kind of protect or preserve them. And I don't ever want the project to be uh, part of that. Um, so at the moment, we're very much just focused on digitization and not only like for the archives collection, but also for the people who own these objects and, you know, uh, have a, a almost insurance policy on the, the objects that they do own because, you know, floods and earthquakes and, you know, everything that can put, you can possibly imagine that can happen, can and does happen in Indonesia. So. It's a really exciting project. I'm really looking forward to what, it, what it's going to become in the future. It's important work to be able to collect that historical information and details because histories so often get lost. And as you said, histories get stolen and histories get told in a different way that it's not really um, intrinsic to the people that have been experiencing uh, their own narratives and their own trajectories in life. So being able to archive this type of work is, is such vital work in maintaining people's uh, identity, self-identity and self-worth. It's really important and it's actually really beautiful work. I'd also like to talk about the work that you do with uh, QLC. What is this work about? Who is it for? Who are the communities that are involved? I know you've spoken about that they're kind of informal meetup groups and now that COVID has become what it is it's probably changed the way that it operates what is the main purpose of QLC and its affiliate chapters around Indonesia? Yeah so QLC is a informal uh, meetup group for queer identifying and queer supporting people in Indonesia. It started Pretty much for a selfish native mind. I was um, living in Jakarta at the time. Um, I kind of was struggling to tap into a queer community that kind of was sustained and regular. Um, so with some friends, I uh, we decided to found um, QRC. Initially, it began as a language exchange group. Um, so we would spend an hour speaking in Bus Indonesia and then now we're speaking in English. But this was about four years ago now. So since then, we started in Jakarta. It got quite popular in Jakarta. And then we kind of, by, by sharing the success of the group on social media, um, we, we had a lot of interest from um, queers in different parts of Indonesia in the model. So we kind of like, uh, well, not so much me, but... Um, a good friend of mine and active participant in QRC Jakarta, Nodiansa, he uh, really kind of set up the model in, so he could share it with people and they could immediately just kind of start meeting up in their own city. So through that, we um, ended up with QRC Bandung, QRC Jakarta, uh, QRC Bali. I think they're also in Bekasi. I think briefly we had one in Ambon in the Moluccas. 
like it's different in every city and like different parts of the community get involved. They're very active and, you know, it was just something really nice to be a part of in that it never had any explicit activist aims. When the community is getting used as a political football in the way that it was, where it has been in Indonesia since 2016, um, you know, just getting together, just building community is such a powerful act. And then in response to COVID-19, a lot of the groups kind of really took up the potential of there being these kind of networks that were already built in order to start a campaign to uh, fundraise and support uh, the most vulnerable members of the communities that we're involved in. And so especially I have to give a shout out to Nodiansa and Ricky in Jakarta that really kind of pushed forward um, a campaign that they called Bantuan Untuk Waria, which was a campaign for fundraising for transformed communities in in Jakarta and in Bali, and it has also supported communities in Surabaya and Malang. In the immediate aftermath of the economic slowdown from um, the COVID-19 shutdowns, it was very much focused on um, food provision and basic needs provision in these locations. And like since then, it's involved in needs provision, but also in being seed funding for uh, micro business startups. So helping someone start a business in terms of selling um, food goods. So we have people selling cakes or squid sambal or fried shallot packets or, you know, various foodstuffs. And then we use the social media networks and the existing networks to help promote these small businesses to ensure that they're having like a steady flow of customers giving them money if, you know, they need to buy an additional oven to help the business or they need kind of support in accessing crowdsourcing a graphic designer to help them with the, the kind of branding of their little business. You know, QOCs are like very much involved in that. I know a QOC in Bali um, has recently started doing kind of um, linking up with local fashion houses in Bali to help, you know, do training in terms of using a sewing machine and then some of the women are now obviously making uh, face masks to help with the response of COVID-19. Yeah, so I don't know, it's been really amazing to watch something that, you know, initially started as kind of like a social club, kind of really kind of run with just what community is good at and that is like supporting each other and ensuring that, you know, people that are having a really hard time at the moment kind of have just the basics they need not only just in eating and like meeting their basic needs but also like in like rebuilding themselves so they can start supporting themselves again like we don't you know no one wants to be kind of the object of charity and so it's and like to me that's community at its best when we're like helping people support themselves in the way um, they want to support themselves and uh, something that's sustainable into the future. None of us know how long COVID-19 is going to go for. There is a lot of goodwill in the community at the moment, but I feel like we're all increasingly feeling the strain of COVID-19 on the community. And so instead of relying on the, everyone being able to give constantly, it's more sustainable to kind of give people the tools to kind of build their own future in what the, the new normal of COVID-19 well, the work is so important. Like, it's so remarkable to hear that it kind of really started for you, really, just so that you could hang out with people and have this social network. But what it's done is uh, provided the opportunity for people to mobilize, uh, to provide mutual aid, but also to provide that aspect of agency for people where they can provide the things that they need for one another and for themselves in the way they want it done, which is such incredible work to be able to amplify those voices and to amplify those actions within their own communities. It's really beautiful and wonderful work. So congratulations. And to sum up, what in your opinion are the most important issues that need more discussion in relation to and for people living with HIV in spite of the narrative that we're in at the moment in relation to U equals U and PrEP? 
for you, in your opinion, what is the most important issues that lay ahead now? Because I, I have been in Indonesia the last few years, for me, I'm increasingly concerned about the gap of experience between countries like Australia or the US or a majority of Europe that is really benefiting from new ecosystem, that's really benefiting from PrEP, that's really benefiting from um, new generations of medication and how there are so many countries that are, you know, just haven't been able to benefit from any of that yet. It's a tricky situation because the world's experienced it many times before that when is countries that have the resources that stop experiencing HIV is such a, a pressing existential issue. If there's no advocacy, we know that that drips down into less and less funding for HIV globally. And, you know, we're seeing that around the world at the moment. And to our immediate neighbours, like Indonesia um, is increasingly struggling to sustain its community-based organisations. Papua New Guinea is also facing extreme barriers in terms of giving people access to treatment, stopping medication-resistant HIV, and you know, letting people even know that they're undetectable. I feel like the focus at the moment is ensuring that just because some people are experiencing the benefits of these like pharmaceutical-based solutions to HIV, you know, that we're not assuming that without effort that that's going to necessarily translate to everyone on the planet, that that work needs to be put in, that it requires communities like the community of people living with HIV in Australia to ensure that, you know, what we're benefiting from here is, you know, available to Medicare ineligible people in Australia and also to, you know, at very least the neighbouring countries to Australia like Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and the rest of the Pacific. Thanks to activist, writer and archivist Bo Newham for taking the time to speak with Queer in the Air about his HIV health promotion work, the effects of HIV stigma, his side projects and his writing work. To read more of Bo's work, head to medium.com forward slash at symbol Bo Newham. To get more information on HIV support, visit Thorn Harbour Health, Victoria's peak body for LGBTIQA plus health promotion via thornharbour.org and also visit the Institute of Many, a peer-run movement for people living with HIV. You can find them at theinstituteofmany.org. To support the work of Yayasan Gaya Diwata in Indonesia, go to gayadiwata.com. Information on Bo's work with Queer Indonesia Archive can be found at qiarchive.org. And to become involved with QLC Jakarta, a community focused on providing safe and inclusive space in Jakarta, go to twitter.com forward slash QLC underscore Jakarta. Links to these resources and organisations will be placed on Queer in the Year's webpage show notes later today and via the podcast version of today's show. If you have any questions, comments or complaints about today's program, contact us via queerintheair at gmail.com. And listen to our collection of podcasts and to today's program on demand for up to a week after initial broadcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash Queer in the Air. Up next is Arabic music program Salam Radio Show. Thanks for listening. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid Nam is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on queeraidmelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's queeraidmelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.